From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Tyler Felson. This is Film Club, a podcast series where our youth film critics and cultural connoisseurs get together to spill the theoretical tea on a new movie. In our last episode, we discussed the Hulu documentary series Sasquatch. The show followed Alaska-born documentarian David Holthouse as he investigated a decades-old rumor he heard while working on a weed farm in Northern California. Three men brutally murdered by Bigfoot. His investigation not only looked into the legends of Bigfoot and the people that devoted their lives to finding the creature, but also the criminal worlds of marijuana growers in the region known as the Emerald Triangle. For this episode, we hear from Holthouse himself. At Me Senior producers Daisy Carter and Chloe Chobel spoke with Holthouse about this mystery and the many others he came across in California, as well as his other documentaries. But we want to take a moment to prepare listeners. This discussion does include some very sensitive topics that may not be suitable for young listeners, as well as some brief, strong language. Here is Daisy Carter and Chloe Chobel speaking with documentary filmmaker David Holthouse. So um, you wanted to find out how we heard about Sasquatch? Yeah, I'm curious. Well, I was on Hulu and I saw an advertisement for it. And my mom looks at the screen and she goes, that's David Holthouse. You should watch that. <laughs> and then I binged the whole thing. It was so like good. Great. Thanks. Well, you know, fire away. How can I help you? How did you get into investigative journalism? Wow, great question. So I guess I would take it all the way back to um, East High School in 1988. I wrote uh, an, an opinion piece about U.S. foreign policy in Central America that was censored by the advisor for the school newspaper. And so I decided to start an underground newspaper. So some buddies of mine and I um, started a underground paper that was called the Thunderground. And originally it was just going to be kind of an opinion journal. But as the year went on, this was my senior year of high school in 88 and 89, we started doing more reporting. In other words, instead of just sort of uh, opining, we were actually doing interviews and research and even doing some document digging and things. So I would trace it all the way back um, that far. That's where I really got started in journalism and investigative journalism. And then in college, um, same buddy of mine, Jordan Marshall, also from Anchorage, and I uh, and some other friends started a newspaper at University of California, Santa Cruz, that was definitely uh, more mm, gonzo and investigative reporting. And, and from then, you know, it's on. So I've been at this for a minute. <laughs> I've been at this since 1988. Yeah. When did you go, go from that transition of investigative journalism for print and go to more documentary type of style? Yeah, another great question. So, um, hmm. you know, you never know what sort of chance meetings or events in your life are going to set you on a fundamentally different life path. And for me, in the year 2000, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine and sort of a mentor of mine, this pretty legendary borderland journalist named Chuck Bowden, who lived in Tucson, Arizona. At the time, I was working in Phoenix but I was getting ready to come back up to Anchorage and edit the Anchorage Press. And Chuck said that the son of a friend of his was a film student at the University of Southern California and was doing his senior film project on um, cockfighting. And I'd just done a story about sort of underground cockfighting in Phoenix. 
And so Chuck was asking me if I'd sit down with this kid, this film student kid, and do an interview for a senior project. I was like, man. But Chuck like really called in a marker with me. And so I did it. And I went to L.A. and I sat for the interview. Well, that kid was a guy by the name of Tiller Russell, who's now, I think, arguably the best documentary film director in the game right now. And so to answer your question, I first met Tiller in 2000 and then about a decade later, he called me up out of the blue and asked me if I wanted to start collaborating with him on some um, some uh, documentary projects. And at that time, documentaries were very much kind of a lark or a sideline or, you know, just something I did for kicks every once in a while. But then in um, around 2015, 2016, I, I realized like this is taking up more and more of my professional time. And it seems like I kind of had reached a crossroads where I was like, okay, am I going to make a second career of this or am I going to stick with, stick with writing? And uh, I just had really, was really fortunate in the timing of it all in that at that time, you know, all these streaming services were coming online, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. Um, So there was a lot of, and for reasons that are still somewhat of a mystery to me, the audience desire for documentary filmmaking was just increasing massively. And so I basically just, now at the same time, the the newspaper and magazine industry was continuing its sort of steep decline that it had been in basically since the internet took over the world. And so to answer your question, as I know that's a long-winded way of answering your question, I I decided that I was going to at least hyphenate myself uh, and I, as writer hyphen documentary filmmaker, I would say 2016, about five years ago. If you were to kind of tell, I don't know, someone who hasn't seen your documentaries, what type of documentaries you do, like, what would you say is your sort of type of documentary? Well, most of my documentaries involve criminal activity. Um, I would say that I can classify them into two groups. One is sort of serious, dark documentaries like The Last Narc and Night Stalker, documentaries that are very uh, serious in tone and deal with um, dark subject matter. And I like making those docs, but the docs that I really like making are gonzo docs. And by gonzo, I mean ones that just kind of like a high, have they have like a high-stepping style they're pretty punk rock they uh they don't take life quite as seriously and those are the ones i really like making i mean you know when i set out in journalism i set out to become the second incarnation of hunter s thompson i mean gonzo journalism is is you know that's my that's my love that's my first love in journalism and it'll be my last so um those are the ones i really like to make and sasquatch is i think uh, in in a lot of ways a hybrid of the two it deals with some pretty dark uh, themes, but it's definitely got its its gonzo moments. Do you think gonzo journalism is sort of like disappearing at all? Because one of the reasons why I think I like Sasquatch is like, like I don't think I've seen a movie like recently with a journalist like diving into something like, I guess there's like Vice, but I don't know. It seems like it, it's harder to do, to do it now. I don't know. I love a lot of this stuff on Vice, but I think to answer your question about whether or not gonzo journalism is fading out kind of with the rest of the journalism, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mm, writers and content creators sort of waving the gonzo flag these days, but they, 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 to my 
perception, they forget that they for, they leave out the journalism and the gonzo journalism. In other words, they'll just do go do some wild and crazy shit and put it on film. And it's some of it's like hugely entertaining, but it's not exactly enlightening or, uh, you know, it's not exposing any ills or it's not like breaking down any barriers in terms of the information that's getting to people. So I guess that's my complaint with it. But that, that said, yeah, there's still really good. There's still really good writing and filmmaking being done in the Gonzo mantle. But more and more, I see stuff that's just kind of like it's, you know, it's purportedly Gonzo, but it's but it's it's kind of shallow. You know, it's just sort of like shock journalism for shock's sake or stunt journalism just to like pull a stunt or something like that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your ABC special, Stalking the Boogeyman? Let me back it up a minute. So Stalking the Boogeyman was a first person essay that I originally wrote in 2004 that was published simultaneously in the Anchorage Daily News uh, and the Anchorage Press and uh, the Westward which was a weekly newspaper where I was working in Denver, Colorado. And it was about my experience as a survivor of childhood sexual assault and my plotting to murder the man who'd raped me when I was seven years old in 1978 in Eagle River. Um, So that story came out and um, I got arrested after it came out. And the fact that I'd been arrested for writing about plotting to murder the man who'd raped me when I was a kid became national news. And I think it was a few years after that, the news magazine, television news magazine 2020 approached me about kind of a a profile piece. So, um, but interestingly enough, like there was the original essay and then the 2020 piece and then the 2020 piece led to um, Ira Glass at This American Life approaching me and asking me if I wanted to adapt it as a, a radio piece for his show. And then when that was broadcast, uh, then uh, Marcus Potter, the director of a theater company called New York Rep, contacted me about adapting it as a play. So point being that 2020 piece was sort of the hinge between um, the original uh, first person essay that was in print and then it then stalking the boogeyman kind of like finding a new life and broadening its audience uh, as a as both a play and and a radio piece. You know, something as intense as a sexual assault and I guess going to jail after, you know, speaking out about it. I was just wondering, how do you get comfortable, you know, with sharing something so personal? Hmm. Well, I'm still not entirely comfortable with it, to tell you the truth. I mean, I know I present kind of a calm veneer. I'm presenting to you like I'm like I'm calm right now and talking about this. But inside, um, I'm getting an adrenaline hit you know, already. I mean, I definitely been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a real thing. And uh, so I'm never, I don't know if you asked calm or comfortable. I'm, I'm about as comfortable talking about it as I can be uh, just from experience. But I, you know, I was originally planning on killing this dude. And then my parents found, as anybody who's read the essay knows, right? my parents found the childhood diary of mine where I'd written about being sexually assaulted by him. And they 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 confronted me about it, and then my mom had already called his parents. And so from that point forward, I knew there was no way I was going to get away with murder. But I still really wanted some payback. You know, I wanted revenge of some kind. And so for me, uh, it became a, you know, pen is mightier than the sword, or in this case, pen is mightier than the nine millimeter approach to trying to 
get revenge for myself and the seven-year-old boy that I once was by by writing about it. And you know, one of the goals was to hurt him, frankly. So practice. I mean, I've I've got I I I try and be uh, as open and candid as I can about it because when I was a kid growing up in Alaska, and we all know, you know Alaska has terribly high rates of sexual assault and especially childhood sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I didn't have any, for lack of a better word, like role models growing up in Alaska. Like I still, the message I was getting from the local culture and the national culture and society was that if you're sexually assaulted as a kid, you're sort of irre- irrevocably damaged for life and, and in some ways irredeemable. Like you're just going to wind up hurting other kids or you're going to have uh, you know, you're going to become a drunk or whatever. There wasn't, there wasn't anybody that I could look up to that was saying this happened to me and, you know, I'm, I'm successful and have a career and have a family. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fairly successful. I have a career, I have a family, I have my mental health challenges and I'm open about that as well. But I try and talk about my experience of being sexually assaulted when I was a kid as often as I can, because, I think it helps people that are going through similar things, whether they're kids or they're adults and they're trying to reckon with what happened to them as a kid. So um, that's why I've kind of forced myself to get as comfortable as I can with it. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And I'm sure it's having a positive impact on a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah. So of all the stories you've done, uh, which one do you think is the most important um, to you? Well, I would say I, I, stalking the boogeyman is kind of in a, in a category of its own. I mean, in terms of the stories that I've done that have had the most impact or I think have done the most to make the world a better place, which, you know, that's kind of one of the fundamental goals, right? Um, that's, that story is in a category of its own. But it, it's not, to me, it's not journalism. It's, um, it's a first-person essay. So let me just say stalking the boogeyman, but that's in a category of one. Outside of that piece, a couple come to mind. Um, just in terms of like pure gonzo thrill ride, uh, there's a piece I did called 72-Hour Party People where I stayed up for three days straight with, with crystal meth addicts and um, wrote about it. And they were, they were like yuppies, you know? They, were, they, were like, they weren't like the, the stereotypical sort of toothless and ruthless haggard meth addict these are people that were very that had money had good jobs but once a month they would like do meth for three days straight and so that was um an unforgettable experience and and in terms of just sort of pure writing firepower one of the pieces and storytelling one of the pieces that i'm most proud of but then in terms of investigative reporting like definitely not gonzo but a piece that um really shed light on an important um ill in society was a piece that I, that I wrote in, I want to say 2005 or 2006, that was an investigative journalism project about neo-Nazis that were deliberately taking advantage of the loosened military recruiting standards during the uh, wars, our sort of endless wars in the Middle East. It was still early years for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan then. And the military had sort of loosened up a bit on who they were letting join and especially join like combat specific units. And there were skinheads and KKK members and uh, neo-Nazis 
that were deliberately joining the military to gain access to training and weapons. And I broke that story. And, um, you know, I just think it was an important, an important like problem to shed light on. I was looking through your website and I noticed that you had a school shooting or that you, I think, produced a school shooting documentary. Doc series, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And a while back, I was actually in a pursuit of story to, about um, school shootings and school safety. And when we, you know, we were talking at APNI um, about how I should approach the story, which included things like, like having compassion and patience and understanding in these stories. Um, I was just really, I was just wondering, how did you pursue your documentary of Active Shooter America Under Fire? And what kinds of things mm-hmm. you kept in mind, you know, talking to these families and talking to these victims? Yeah, that's really great question. It's really tough approaching anybody that's been through a traumatic experience, whether it's they've been a victim of a crime themselves or they're like a surviving family member of someone that was seriously hurt or you know, tragically murdered. I guess how I try and approach those subjects is I... Um, I give as much time as I can before asking them a question on the record. I try and get to know them. I try and like let them get comfortable with me and I try and let them tell their story, not for the record, at least once, if not twice or three times or 10 before I take out a notebook or start rolling tape or start shooting them with a camera. That's terrible. Like terrible that we say shooting with a camera, given the topic, but before I stay, you know, taking footage of them and just, uh, Listen, I know that that sounds, you know, duh, of course you're listening, but let them, let them drive the conversation as much as possible, you know. I just graduated from high school, like, about a couple of years ago. Like, I lived through many, like, drills and, main, and many, like, false alarms of people bringing guns to school. Um, and so my goal was to kind of shed light and to share awareness about how serious this is and how relevant it still is, because... Once a mass shooting happens, it's just kind of this wave of, oh, we need to change gun laws or, oh, we need to talk about mental health a lot more. And then just kind of dies down. And I mm-hmm. wanted to keep that conversation going. Um, and I was just wondering, what was your goal in, you know, producing that documentary? Active Shooter. Mm-hmm. Just that. I mean, to try it. Part of it. One of the goals was to just make sure that the conversation was at least still happening. I mean, it was so creepy because Active Shooter came out right before that guy. And I try and never use their names. That's one thing I think the media has really aired on is um, all of the broadcasting of the, of, the, of the killer's name or trying to get into his motivations because it's almost always a man, right? Trying to get into his motivations or why did he do this? Uh, and it's, I just think it's like terrible that we can all probably name 10 mass murderers that committed an active shooting, but we don't know the names of the victims, but that's a bit of a tangent. Um, I was trying to keep the conversation going um, and try and at least get people to think about what is it about America that, that we have this terrible and tragic phenomenon of, of mass shootings in this country. I mean, it's not, you. it's not, only America, but it's like the, the frequency is unique to this country. And you can't just attribute it solely to the easy availability of firearms, which is clearly a factor. But there's other countries where you can buy 
semi-automatic rifles with semi-automatic handguns. They don't, don't have nearly the level of active uh, shooting events that we do. So just trying to like not providing any answers or not being like polemic about it or saying like, this is the problem and this is the solution, but just trying to get people to at least think about it. And also to um, humanize and bring into, and bring into highlight the, the, the toll on um, that these people that, that die, they're not just name and age and in a, in a list, you know, uh, they they left behind people that are you know whose lives are fundamentally fundamentally altered. So um, you know I remember I remember Columbine very clearly. I remember when it happened and it was just like life stopped. Uh, it was it was shocking. The country was shocked by Columbine in 1999, and that's no longer the case. You know, and you look at the death toll. I just I just remember making that show. We looked at the death toll in Columbine. It was like, you know, you barely get a headline these days. That kind of death toll in active shooting. You know, but uh, somehow we're 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 getting numb to it, and I don't see um, it, it being, you know, mass murderers killing a lot of people with guns. We're like getting numb to that, um, and so active shooter was trying to resensitize instead of like we become desensitized to it, it was trying to resensitize the audience to the phenom that phenomenon i think that's another conversation that we need to have too about you know putting these these murderers kind of on a pedestal because you know you're right and i think that news organizations like also have a play and a role in how and how we react to those things so i'm, I'm glad you brought that up yeah, I think if we, you know, it started even before Columbine, but I mean, I just really think like news organizations should be very, 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 very judicious in, in when to use the name of, of the killer, you know, and if it's not like re clearly relevant for some sort of unreason, uh, some sort of unusual reason, I just think it's, there should be a ban, uh, not a legal ban, but a customary ban, a custom within the media world to not use their names anymore. You're listening to Film Club from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Coming up next, David Holthouse talks about his new Hulu documentary series, Sasquatch. Stick around. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can learn all sorts of multimedia skills, conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio and video, record voiceovers, write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to our interview with David Holthouse. I'm really interested in like the process of how you make these documentaries, um, like looking specifically at Sasquatch. Yeah. How do you get from the pitch to the final project? And then how do you get picked up by like Hulu? You know, it, it's the process is different. The process is very project dependent. So it varies from, from uh, show to show. In the case of Sasquatch, like Hulu bought that series before we made it. So, and that's really preferable, obviously, <laughs> so that you're not, um, you know, risking uh, a lot of time and expense 
uh, on something that you don't know is, is actually going to have, have a home when it's finished. But like, you know, so with, with Sasquatch, you know, we took that to a couple other places. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's some other major streaming services passed on that show. Uh, but Hulu was willing to roll the dice on it. So um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but it's uh, so that you want to know about the pitch process, like how that works or. Yeah. I'm just like really curious about like the, like how you got to like make your idea happen for this story. Well, I was fortunate in that the director that I worked with on, on Sasquatch guy by the name of Joshua Rofay, he and I made a series together on the Lorena Bobbitt case and um, it was a pretty big hit for Amazon. And so we were in the enviable, very um, fortunate position of having ex- entertainment executives coming to us saying, what are you guys thinking about doing next? Right. But even with that heat, even with the, even with the buzz coming off of Lorena, Sasquatch was so like off center and it's sort of fundamentally uh, weird that, um, that still we had a little bit of trouble finding a home for it. But what it looked like was um, us convincing them, convincing Hulu essentially that however this – like whether or not we solve these murders, whether or not we figure out definitively whether or not a triple homicide actually occurred, the um, – the exploration of that world is going to be that world being the underground weed growing culture in Northern California. The exploration of that world is going to be so fascinating and such a, such a uh, great ride for the viewer that the series will work, uh, which we always felt from the beginning. Now, something interesting about Sasquatch is that my being on the other side of the camera, that's the first time I've done that. And that was not the plan going in. Here's some news for you guys, okay? I don't think we talked about I don't think I've talked about That was not the plan going in. We just got to a certain point. We were like, the story of investigating this story is so interesting that we have to start documenting it. The characters that we're meeting, the phone calls, the like meeting with shady sources and parking lots. It's like that just clearly was like, oh, this is, this is part of this story. And, and so that's, that, that was not the original vision going in. That's so interesting because it's like, yeah, that's the whole fun of the show. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it, it works. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, sometimes, uh, well, you, you always have to be willing to look. I think in terms of journalism, I had an editor that was like, one of the things that distinguishes or that, that makes um, higher caliber journalists a characteristic that higher caliber journalists have is, is the, uh, the ability of the willingness and the openness to pivot off of what they thought the story was going in. So a lot of the best, and I've found that a lot of the best stories in my career have been ones that took a, took an unexpected turn once I was in the reporting process. And um, it was a variation of that with Sasquatch. Like we had a, we had a, we had a plan for how we were going to make the show and what the story was. And just a couple months in, we realized, oh, we need to pivot to a sort of fundamentally different kind of show. And it was clearly the right move. One thing we've kind of like, I guess, joked about, uh, like talking about Sasquatch is it's funny because the only negative reviews you see online on like IMDb are from like Squatchers who are like. Yeah, Squatchers. (laughs) They felt tricked. I mean, they're pissed about two things, right? Like one is they're expecting it to be a hunt for Sasquatch show, of which there are 
dozens already. The world doesn't need another Hunting for Bigfoot show. And so they're mad about that. And then they're mad, like, at the end, I say that I, that I don't believe in Bigfoot. So, you know, they're like, the star of the show had to, like, say he doesn't believe in Bigfoot. So, yeah, I know. I've gotten a lot of, lot, lot of flack from the Squatchers. You know, sometimes, like, I'm, even in this interview, I mean, if it's just like you're saying something for the record. You know, sometimes it's like, I don't know. I, I'm more, I like to think that I'm more sort of agnostic on, on, on Bigfoot. You know, I just, I, I haven't seen one. Until I see one, I'm, I'm not going to say that I believe in Bigfoot. But I, I would like to. I would love to see one. I would love to believe in Bigfoot. It'd be a much more interesting world if Bigfoot lived in it. So, yeah. So, yeah, you talk to a ton of shady and kind of offbeat characters in Sasquatch. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, who are like your favorite people you interviewed in Sasquatch? Like, who did you find most interesting? Oh, uh, Ghost Dance. The guy, like Michael Ghost Dance, the old school grower. Yeah. Amazing dude, like totally willing to like put his name to it, put it like put it all out there. And the thing is with that guy, I'm thinking, can I say this? I think I can. Like he is, um, for a long time, if the Hell's Angels that grow on Spyrock had trouble with a crop, he's the guy they'd call. All right. He's like a master grower. He has his own, has been like since the seventies, you know, knows everything there is to know about growing weed, indoor weed, outdoor weed, different strains, whatever. So it's like they had a problem with a bug infestation or like they needed to change up the fertilizer or whatever, Ghost Dance was the guy that the Hells Angels would call. So he's got kind of a hall pass to, to speak his mind in a way that, that others don't in terms of like criminal shenanigans on Spy Rock Road. Like nobody's going to mess with that guy because messing with that guy is tantamount to messing with the Hells Angels weed crops. And that's not a good idea. No. So I just like, he's really just a fascinating dude. That guy Razor too. I mean, um, who was frankly, who introduced me to ghost dance, who was the guy that was basically raised by the hell's angels in the uh, late sixties and early seventies in San Bernardino, California, like the original hell's angels. Um, that guy's a really interesting cat too. You know, I spent hours driving around Mendocino and Humboldt counties with, with razor and I uh, could just listen to him tell stories about, you know, the weed business in the eighties and the nineties when it was like, full-on war on drugs um yeah he, he really lived it so one of my favorite moments in the documentary is the first time you mention um the name it's bleeped out mm -hmm. um to razor and he just like absolutely like stone face like no no change of movement in his face he's like oh yeah i'm not going to talk about that yeah it's just like the first moment when you're like it's like kind of real business yeah yeah i mean i you nailed it. You nailed it there. And I remember that, that moment very clearly because that was the moment where I knew like, okay, we're actually onto something that checks out. So sometimes like obviously somebody's refusal to uh, answer a question can sometimes speak volumes or at least like give you a pretty big breadcrumb to let you know that you're on the right trail. I was just wondering, were you ever scared, like, in pursuing this story or any other story that you've done? Oh, plenty. Yeah. I mean, specific to this story, um, yeah. Yeah. I was scared uh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, I was, uh, you know, some of the most 
I'll get back to Sasquatch specifically, but more generally, some of the most dangerous situations I faced um, in journalism have been simply because of the environment that I was in to get the story, rather than the fact that I was a journalist or that I was pursuing that particular story. Like, point being, like, if you're embedded with a street gang and you're doing a story on a street gang and there's a drive-by and you're getting shot at, you're not getting shot at because you're a journalist, because you're doing that story. It's just because you're hanging out with a street gang. Or, and so my point being when, in regards to Sasquatch is the backwoods of Northern Mendocino County are a dangerous place for anybody to be at any time. It's just dangerous country. Now, specific to the story that I was pursuing, my concern was always that, let me diverge for a minute. One of the docs I did recently was a series for Amazon called The Last Snark. And it was about a DEA agent who we show in the documentary was murdered because he stumbled across the uh, operation for the U.S. government was complicit in smuggling cocaine into the United States. So the CIA, rather, was helping smuggle cocaine in the United States to fund illegal wars in Central America. But Kiki Camarena wasn't investigating that. He just stumbled across it without really knowing what he'd stumbled across, and it got him killed. And my concern with Sasquatch was always that I was either going to stumble across like evidence of a completely different murder and simply know too much or that I was going to wind up talking to one of the killers in the purported, you know, Oh, that's a spoiler, but (laughs) one of the killers in the, in the, in the murder at the heart of the show and not know that that's who I was talking to. In other words, I was very aware that I was susceptible to being lured into a trap that if someone had decided that I gotten too close, that I knew too much, they would be able to lure me up the mountain by, by, you know, Hey, so-and-so's got all the information you're looking for, you know? So I was very judicious in how I dealt with those situations and, and tried to be as careful as I could, but it was always a very calculated risk. And the the other thing I found out too, and that we sort of allude to this in, in the show is that you go up there in that part of the world and start asking questions about unsolved homicides from the early nineties and you start getting information about lots of different unsolved homicides from the early 90s. And it's hard to know. I had to part of what I had to do was like try and stay as as carefully as I could on the trail of the Bigfoot murders. Right. But uh, several times I was sort of on a false trail. I was on I was on a I was getting information about a different unsolved, unreported triple homicide. And so that's what I mean about I was I was worried that I would get too close to solving or getting key information about murders that wasn't even the ones I was looking into. The red line for me was always, I was like, if I, if somebody starts giving me the locations of bodies, then that's where I'm too close to it. Because there's that old saying, no body, no crime. Meaning like, this is all just rumor, legend, campfire story, whatever, until, you know, bodies start turning up. So uh, anytime anybody like offered to tell me where bodies were buried, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to know. Don't want to know. Just stop the conversation right there. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was going to ask you too. I was like, when do you like draw the line where it's like too far? <laughs> yeah, that was one. And I just, um, I don't know, at a certain time, I just, I just felt like it, it's time, it's time to stop. 
You know, I feel like that story was probably bottomless. Mm -hmm. Probably, I think I could have spent another year on it and maybe gotten a little closer to the whole story. But um, yeah, I, it was it was time it was time to stop. One thing we kind of we've kind of talked about is uh, in the documentary. There's like this idea that like you go up north and like it's more lawless. It's like kind of like Alaska. It's a little bit mm-hmm. um, in the woods. <laughs> you can get away with more stuff. But yeah, I felt like I saw kind of a connection between maybe not as intense as Northern California, but Alaska and Northern California, um, just in terms of like it's people think it's this beautiful place, and then behind the mm-hmm. scenes sometimes there's some crazy for sure what northern mendocino county really reminded me of is the matsu valley both the people and the place and it's like in that juxtaposition of like so much natural splendor and beauty juxtaposed with just like a different breed of criminal you know let's put it that way a different breed of criminal not like not an urban criminal but um just as dangerous if not more so yeah. I think that's something people don't don't keep in mind when they come up to Alaska. <laughs> like they like they like they literally just get like enveloped by engulfed by like the beauty and it's like, yeah, no. There's some sketch up there. Yeah. Going back to kind of talking about the danger of the you know, you had to really assess like how much danger you were in when you were working on this um story and yeah. I think the first moment in the documentary where I really felt or one of the one of the first moments where I felt like, I don't know what's going to happen to our documentarian in this show is I think it's just the first time that guy is showing you around Mendocino County and he's his voice is um, altered. So you can't hear what he's saying. But and then he talks about it's like kind of the first instance where you um, start talking about the racism um, in that region um and he talks about like a black man being killed for like who knows why mm-hmm. um and you just watching it you really get the feeling that like this dude could like just shoot you and like dump you somewhere in that like yeah area yeah yeah you know i, I remember that vividly <laughs> yeah being told a story about the yeah a black guy from la who'd been murdered in a deal gone bad yeah, it was, um, and they were telling me the story like it was funny, like their pit bull had gone and dug up his, so while this guy was waiting to be executed, where he was going to die, he had urinated on himself. This is how they're telling the story to me. And after they shot him and buried him on the property where I was, they right. said, that their their pit bull went and dug up his boot and, and brought it back is like urine soaked boot and sort of dropped it, you know, like, Oh, look what I found. And they were telling me this story, like it was the height of hilarity. And, you know, in the moment, like being where I was outwardly, I'm like laughing along. Like this is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. You know, the pit bull running back into camp with the urine soaked boot, how hilarious, but inside I was like, am I getting off this mountain today? You know, like that was to answer your early question. That was when I was, that actually happened fairly late. It's early in the show, mm-hmm. but it happened rather late in the actual reporting process. You know, we do play with the timeline a bit for storytelling purposes. And that was when I, I was like, okay, that's far enough. That's far enough. Mm-hmm. 
And how like intentional was that? Did you just like stumble like upon like um like talking about it or was it like Yeah, no, I I'd, I'd ask him, I mean, I was I was asking them about violence in the area and if they knew any, you know, I would approach people like, you know, any like kind of crazy, because I didn't want to, I didn't want anybody to just be feeding me back what they knew I wanted to hear. So in other words, I wouldn't go and say, Hey, have you ever heard a story about Bigfoot killing three guys from Mexico on a weed farm near Branscombe in the fall of 93? Instead, I'd be like, you know, any like really like crazy murder stories, you know, from, from the early nineties or any crazy murder. Have you heard any really wild stories about murders? So that way, if somebody comes back with, well, there's the one about how Bigfoot killed these three guys. And I'm like, okay, now we're talking about the same story. So in that one, I was like, you know, do you ever heard any really like kind of wild outlandish stories about murders around here? And their story was, more recent than 1993 and it happened on their property, but it involved the hilarity of a a pit bull and a urine soaked boot. So that's how that came about. I'd given them that prompt and that's what they came back to me with. That's nuts. Yeah. 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 Really scared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And the casualness with which people talk about murder in that part of the world, like just, knowing that I was a documentary filmmaker. I mean, I don't even, I can't even count how many times I would ask him about, you ever heard a kind of crazy story about murders in Northern Mendocino County? And they'd be like, well, there's the time that the angels like whacked those three guys over on, you know, Iron Peak, or there was the time that Jerry down the road here did in that guy. I was like, dude, like, I, I just met you. Yeah. <laughs> it, but that's, that's the world. That's the world. You know? Yeah. That guy, he knew you were like a jerk. You weren't like undercover. He knew you were. No, no, I didn't. I didn't do any. Uh, that's been kind of a, a misunderstanding maybe around Sasquatch because I have done some undercover work, but I was never undercover uh, in that. I mean, I was just everybody. Everybody was aware that I was making a documentary for Hulu that I was talking to. And even after, you know, talking to these to these squatchers and, you know, kind of being in the world like you're still not a squatcher. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, like I said I want to believe I, I like and I believe some stuff that's you know pretty far out of the mainstream like I believe I believe that uh, like parallel universe or, or multiverse is at least possible mm-hmm. um, so I think it's possible that there is a universe that's parallel to our own where there's lots of what's the plural of Sasquatch or Bigfoot there's lots of these creatures like they're the sort of they're the sort of dominant hominid creature they were they were sort of the pinnacle of evolution and that every once in a while the wires get it's like exactly like our own reality except in that regard and every once in a while like the wires get crossed somehow and and so that results in in bigfoot sightings um in other words they're temporarily part of this reality and i think that's a fun thing to contemplate because if that's true that it means that there's that there's a world where Sasquatch are turning are sitting around asking one another whether or not they believe in big hairless monkeys, <laughs> right? Or they're not sas- asking one another whether or not they believe in people. So I like to think about it again. I'd, I'd like I'd love for that to be true, but the one moment that had me like a little bit convinced that maybe Sasquatch does exist was mm-hmm. the one guy. He had like a beanie and he's standing up in the interview. Um, like pretty intense and he's like 
look around at the landscape from like Northern California yeah. to Alaska. The yeah. wilderness is so long. Like you don't know what's in there. And that was like the one thing where I was like, maybe Sasquatch is real. I don't know. That's like a pretty good point. <laughs> you know, it's, I'll say this much. Sasquatch makes a lot more sense uh, once you've been, when you're in those woods. It's like, you know, I'm from Alaska and those redwood forests up there are big country big country there's like you get off you get off the paved road and you're in some pretty thick woods really quick and and uh yeah it's just the trees are so big um and dense and even in you know the, the brightest part of the day the it's it's dim and kind of hard to kind of hard to see things and there's a lot of shadows um so it's it's like i'll just say this much like sasquatch makes a lot more sense to me I haven't spent time in those in those forests. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, you've done so many documentaries and you've done so many, you know, important stories. Um, is there any stories that you do that, that you like continue that you want to kind of pursue? Any other stories that you w- would like to pursue? Well, one that's been on my mind a lot lately is I, I did a story on a on a drug dealer who was murdered in Denver in 2001. So just about exactly 20 years ago. And um, it's always stuck with me. I, I, I didn't solve it and I kind of ran out of time. Not kind of, I ran out of time and you know, Hey, look, I found the foundation. Newspapers are a business and that newspaper needed to come out. And the editor just kind of wrested the story away from me and ran with what I had. And, and I've always wanted to go and kind of go back and get a second bite at that particular apple. So that's one that I'm thinking about um, taking another look at for sure. You might run into squat, Sasquatch again if you do that. Yeah, and then <laughs> <laughs> It's all coming together. That was At Me producers Chloe Chobel and Daisy Carter speaking with David Holdhouse about the documentary series Sasquatch. You've been listening to Film Club, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards and Nat Hers. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth ages 13 to 24 who is interested in becoming a member of our team, go to alaskateenmedia.org join to find out more. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Tyler Felsen. Thanks for listening.